The One Club, in partnership with MasterCard, is the best way to get closer to golf's original championship. Enjoy enhanced chances of securing future championship tickets. Sign up for free today at theopen.com. You're listening to The Open Podcasts. That one you're talking about? I think he likes that one. Is that the one you're talking about? Oh, he's got it. He's got it. And that's it. And that settles it. He got out. Not only that, he got near. There it is. Oh, a beautiful stroke, wrapped up by the flag. And he's just done it. Oh, you think he enjoyed that one? The wait for the 150th Open Championship at St Andrews is nearly over. Welcome back to the 150th show with me, Marcus Buckland, where we're previewing this year's championship, as well as looking back at some of the home of golf's most iconic moments. Alongside me for the journey, multiple European Tour winner and highly regarded UK golf broadcaster Robert Lee, who played in four Open Championships with two top 25 finishes, and leading US broadcaster and best-selling author Matt Adams. Now, the concept is pretty straightforward. We're taking a hole-by-hole tour of the course while looking back at some of the iconic moments that spring to mind as soon as you transport yourself to past opens at St Andrews. We have already travelled from one to nine. That podcast is available in all the usual manners. If you haven't heard it, then it probably makes sense to listen to that before you join us on the back nine. And we start with hole 10, a par 4, 386-yarder. It's called Bobby Jones, named after the champion golfer of 1927 and the amateur champion of 1930 at St Andrews. Essentially, you've got two options. You can lay up or you can aim for a narrow, undulating strip of fairway leading to the green, which is shared with the eighth. So, generally speaking, Rob, what do you expect most players to do here? If there's any help in the air or it's absolutely dead still... um... Players can get to the screen. They can they can smash it up on or very close to the green, especially if they've got a bit of wind behind them. It's another birdie hole. Nine and ten, you would be thinking, I want to be at least one under par for those two holes. I want to birdie. If I could birdie them both, great. But if I could be birdie at nine, par at ten, or the other way around, that would be absolutely fine. It's a birdie chance. You've got to avoid the bunkers down the right, as you've already said. Um, there's some thick stuff. I mean, if you hit a wicked snapper, you're in gorse bushes. That's not really in play. Um, and the, the, the road to the green from the tee, when you get up near the green, it's not hugely uh, spacious. You've got to be very accurate, long and accurate, and you can find the putting surface. And one memory immediately springs to mind. It was the famous duel at this hole in 2000. Tiger Woods going head-to-head in the final round with fellow American David Duval. And now both players have had two, and they're both about the same distance. In fact, Duval might be closest. Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, well, a Tiger, I think, is just a little bit closer. And in fact, if I was David Duval, I would want to be putting first. As long as you could hold it. Duval to putt for a birdie at the 10th. Hasn't hit it. No, he quick, quick stroked it. He just took it back a little short. Didn't wait for the putter to get all the way back and decelerated coming through. Now, this length of putt that Tiger has is the the one that uh, he's been holding consistently for several weeks now. Well, he knows how big a moment this is. Oh, yes. Never a doubt, was it? Well, it's, um, you know, cometh the moment, cometh the man, or whatever somebody once said, but it is amazing how when others sort of just slip and stumble, Tiger at the moment is in this wonderful mode where... He gets the job done, and that was a massive, massive stroke there. Matty, just how significant a passage of play was that in the overall context of the 2000 Open? Well, coming into that final round, there was a sense that fate held it, that Duval would have no chance, that that Tiger, because of the year that he was having, because he who he was at that time, maybe the greatest a player ever in a single season, uh, certainly across a couple when he ended up holding all four 
major trophies at the same time. There just was this idea that, David, there really isn't anything that you can do. But what did Duval do? He went out and birdied four of his first seven holes to get within three strokes. So with that miss there at 10, it had a significance that felt much deeper and much heavier than what took place simply at that one green. And we talked about match play, uh, as, as you sometimes get in opens, with the very best Norman and, and Faldo, 1990, the, the first hole. You could, you could say Spieth and, and Day for a period in, in 2015. Uh, I guess we're kind of hoping for something like that again this year, uh, Robert, without being too greedy? Uh, no, I think you should, you should be greedy. You should want the full show at St Andrews. Um, and you're going to get it. You're gonna, it's, you know, the, the, the world of golf right now is in a phenomenal position. There's players vying for that number one spot. You talk about Justin Thomas and Scheffler. Uh, and John Rahm, Rory's going to get back to world number one at some point. There's just some brilliant young players coming through as well. It couldn't be healthier, the state of the game of golf. Add into that when we get to St. Andrews this year, with a bit of luck, we're going to have Tiger Woods playing as well at his favourite course, which he said at Augusta National that St. Andrews, the old course, was his favourite golf course in the whole world. We're going to get the best players in the world and Tiger Woods at the Open this year, number 150. There's going to be drama. It's guaranteed. It's baked in. That's what we like to hear. And I guess when we mention those match play battles at St Andrews, uh, Seve and, and Tom Watson in, in 1984 are, are worth a, a memorable shout out as well. So that is Bobby Jones, the 10th. Let's hear a little more about the influential American now with golf historian and journalist Tom Jarrett. He had a great love for St Andrews, not to begin with. He, when he came here first, he was so disgusted. He, he tore up his card and, and said he would never be back, but he came to love the course. And, of course, anybody who loves St Andrews is loved by St Andrews. And, of course, the fact that he had, he had won the Grand Slam, the, the only man ever to do it. And, and, and then, of course, he came back in, to St Andrews in 1958 as captain of the... Uh, American uh, Eisenhower Cup team. And when he was here, he was given the freedom of the city of St Andrews. Golf historian and journalist Tom Jarrett, they're talking about Bobby Jones, who memorably tore up his card after taking four to escape from Hill Bunker on the 11th in the third round in 1921. Clearly, it can happen to the very best. Can I just say what a beautiful Scottish accent that was? That was right out of the top drawer. Oh, how I love that. I absolutely love that. And the way he spoke and pronounced his words sounded historical. It was almost like from a, from a, a bygone age. It was gorgeous. What was your question? Uh, the, the disaster can befall the very oh, best. Oh, God, anyway. Andrews. And you can just hit one stray shot into the wrong bunker... I'm not going to, it's not all about me, but I hit a shot coming down the stretch when I played there a couple of weeks ago on, where was I? I was on 15. I was in a bunker, a fairway bunker, and I, there was actually no way that I could stand to, I couldn't get it out. I had to sit with my bum on the top of the revetted face, dangle my legs because of the way the ball was positioned up against the face, and play it with my legs suspended to get it out of the bunker. So you can get yourself in a spot where, Ordinary rules do not apply. It's, it's very special. And what I love, having read a bit of the history of, of St Andrews in particular, Matty, and I know you're, you're very big on, on your historical knowledge, you, you hear these great names associated with the course. Bobby Jones is just one of them. I mean, it, it's such a, a who's who when you just delve into, you know, 150 years ago right up to the modern day. There's no doubt about that. And what's interesting about Bobby Jones's role with that was, as we just heard described, he was 19 years old when he made his debut in the Open in 1921. Uh, he was struggling throughout. He was outside of the top 10 when he hit into that bunker at 11. And as you noted correctly, it took him four tries to try to get out. And he ripped up his scorecard. He was DQ'd after that. And it's such a contrast because he finished that round and he said, paraphrasing, that he thought that the old course might be one of the worst courses that he ever saw. <laughs> what you might find interesting, Marcus, is that 
that is not it, that is not an unusual emotion for people that mm. see the old course for the first time. I know that it's a spiritual experience. I know that it is a mecca, but for many people, when they first see it, they cannot decipher it. They cannot translate it. They cannot understand the riddle that is the old course. And that's exactly what happened with Bobby Jones. But the more one sees the old course of St. Andrews, the more it reveals just how ingenious it is. And yes, while it can be confounding, and it certainly was for Bobby Jones in that instant, obviously he ended up loving St. Andrews and they loving him. Well, let's have a, a look in a little more detail at hole 11, 174-yard par 3. Um, the, the locals call it the shortest par 5 in golf. So, Rob, give us give us a full flavour of the, the potential horror and difficulties of this one. Do you know, when you stand on that tee, it's an elevated tee, you walk left off the 10th green to go up to that 11th tee, and you can see there's a... It's the most horrible bunker in the front of that green. It, it, it dominates everything, the one bunker, because the thing about St Andrews and a lot of Lynx courses, all right, you think the bunker's that size. Actually, it's not that size. It's so much bigger, because anything... Four or five yards right or left of it gets gathered into the bunker and you end up in it anyway. You don't want to be in that bunker with a front pin. You've got absolutely no shot. Uh, with a headwind, the green is steeped up behind that bunker. It's very It slopes from back to front, very much towards the front of the green. If you're underbid into the breeze and you're left of the bunker on a good line and you're not quite far enough, it can roll back 10, 15 yards short of the green. Now you've got a shot off of hard pan. You've got to come over the bunker to a pin um, easy to get that wrong. You can skin it long or fat it in the bunker. It's very difficult to get that. Four's a good score. It is the shortest par four in the world. I'll go along with that. Mm -hmm. You can make three at 11, regardless of the wind condition, you've had a raver. I did somewhat frivolously uh, mention during our, our first podcast, our journey from one to nine, that the way to avoid all the trouble on these difficult par threes is to simply have a hole in one, which Tim Simpson did manage in, in the fourth round back in... 1990. Well, it's Tim Simpson. Oh, uh, everyone's shaking his hand, so I can only assume he's had a hole in one, or he's done something quite remarkable. He's playing with Vicente Fernandez. He looks all very cool and calm about it, Mr. Simpson. Eight under par he was until he struck this blow. This this looks like the 11th. There you are. hole-in-one at the 11th, and I don't think all that many people have done that. So that's the tactic, Matty. Just, just ram it in the hole, as I said before, and, and, and move on. Never mind taking a four. Strath, Never mind. Strath bunker. Whatever What's you do, you? stay out of Strath bunker. What's beautiful about that hole, as Robert so eloquently described, is the way that it plays with one's mind. It instills insecurity, and rightfully so, because the, the, the margins of error there are so small. There are so many occasions at the old course where one has to choose if you're going to truly take a safe line and, and remove all primary risk of, say, a double bogey or, or otherwise, then you're going to end up with a putt that can seem like miles from the hole. And the 11th very much instills that. It's one of the, from, from that elevated tee that Robert described, it is one of the great views in the game of golf because of the way that hole is so ingeniously designed from a green complex. Okay, well, you have staggered away from the 11th. Hopefully you, you've managed to get your par, your four might not be a disastrous score, as Rob mentioned. And you move on to hole 12, a 351-yard par four, which... Tom Watson, of all people, Rob, says he still doesn't know how to play. Yeah, do you know, it's a par four you can drive. All, a lot of players can reach this green, but it's you, there's two bunkers down there um, towards the green. One particularly there's about, that's about 15, maybe the back end of it is 15 short of the front edge. You've got to avoid that because, again, you can end up against the reverted face. And if you're going to knock it on the green, normally you're running the gauntlet just to the right of that, just to the left of it. And then the green raises up onto it. It's got a tabletop, which isn't very deep, and they have the pin up there quite often. And you can end up going from short up over onto the top, downwind, over the back, and then it's really difficult to get it back up the slope, back to where the pin is. So for such a short hole, yes, you can birdie it, but the defence is the green. 
it's always the green here at St Andrews. It's either the green because it's so massive that you're not necessarily going to be used to having a 30-yard putt, or it's so intricate and multi-layered like the 12th is, it's very difficult to get the ball where the pin is. So it asks you questions from that tee box. And as Tom Watson um, hinted at, do you go for the green and take on possibly two or six? Or do you go just flop it down there and try and wedge it close? And when the pin's on that shelf that I've been talking about, you can't guarantee to get a sandwich on it. Yeah, Matty, thinking back to, to 2010, uh, I remember Oosthuizen birding the hole, Casey taking a seven. That that was a, a key moment. I, I have a feeling that we might be looking at hole 12 come the weekend, come the Sunday in particular, and uh, sensing that some really significant developments might occur based on the history of that hole. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that because it's, as Robert just described, the hole that carries with it such great opportunity. But there is obviously, as referencing what Paul Casey did there in 2010, great risk as in Paul Casey's case, he put himself in a position he could not extract himself from. It was right in the middle of a, of a gorse bush. Uh, it's a brilliant hole. It's a beautiful hole. It has great undulations to it. It has deviously placed bunkers to it as well. And, you know, I think back in terms of the significance of that hole, let's say Tiger Woods, when he drove the green in the year 2000. And I, I think in terms of the context of what that encapsulated at that moment at that time for Tiger is that Tiger Woods probably more so than any other player in the history of the game other than perhaps Jack Nicklaus and Bobby Jones but but I would think Tiger Woods would even have the edge in this regard and it was the way that he would answer to the unrelenting demands the pressure that surrounded him of expectation the, the way that he rose to the occasion so he had ended the prior season with four consecutive victories. He added two more consecutive victories at the start of the season that was the year 2000. And then he won at Bay Hill. That's Arnold Palmer's tournament. Think about this for a second. Then he won at the Memorial. That's Jack Nicholas's tournament. It seems like great players are always somehow a bridge to, to great players that came before them. Then he wins the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach by a record 15 strokes. All of that is what led up to this open at St. Andrews in 2000, and all of that is what led up to the shot that he hit at number 12. Now, Tiger yesterday drove through the green, over the back. Ernie Els, well, this hole must have, if, if anyone said that Ernie lost the Open Championship, he lost it right here. He's had a terrible time on this hole yesterday and today. Now, Tiger, can he drive it? He certainly doesn't need any help, does he, to encourage him along? Well, we've got some more Tiger moments coming up, but that was a pretty special one, Rob, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I mean, to drive that green when, you're, when you need to do something special. If you're taking the driver out, you're obviously hoping that you're going to avoid all the trouble, the gorse, the bunkers, and somehow you're going to be putting with your second shot, which he was after a breathtaking tee shot. But what I will, well, what I will tell you is a couple of weeks ago, and I played, I played twice on the old course, separated by three or four days, and the pins were in new positions for both those rounds. I think they were testing. Some of the pin positions that they had out that I, that I played and encountered were be almost... Really? You're putting a pin there? They were, I think they were trying them out. I mean, you you can find little corners of these greens at St. Andrews where it's all bust, if you know what the first word was. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I'm glad you avoided it. And they can be extremely demanding. Add in a 25-mile-an-hour breeze and those pin positions, if they play some of the ones that I played, it's going to be very interesting. So you can find one certainly on that 12th green. You know, over the course of these two podcasts, you must have mentioned five times that you played the old course twice recently. You haven't actually told us what you scored yet. Uh, no, well, I didn't keep score. We were playing the beauty of match play. Come on, Marcus, oh, the beauty I, I, of match play. Oh, I see. I see. What, no, I played, roughly, no, roughly. No, what... I played the back when we had the, I'll, I'll get to the eight. I'll tell the story of 18 when we get there. Oh, yes. Which That's... will trump all the other great stories. It, it? It, it will never trump any of the stories, but <laughs> it, it will be the truth. OK, well, our journey continues now to the 13th, par four, 465 yards. I've written one word, D. 
difficult. Well, yeah. For me, impossible. Fairway ends at approximately 300 yards. Uh, you've, you've got the coffin bunkers. Why have I got difficult as the first uh, word here? Do you know, because you can't see a lot from the tee box and the coffins have... Oh, coffin, well named. You're absolutely dead if you're in them. It's a, it's a come out sideways if you're lucky. Avoid those bunkers. You've got to play down a sort of thin... It, it's a, Again, you get double greens, you get double fairways in the middle of the golf course here at St Andrews on the front nine and the back nine. This, again, is a double fairway. Um, avoid the coffins. It's quite a narrow strip of fairway down the right-hand side. And as you say, you do run out of fairway. And then you might have a semi-blind shot to a green that's slightly up. And you have to... You can't run it onto this green. You've really got to fly it onto the 13th green. And where they put the pin, again, there's a great defense if they put it short right. There's a bunker if you just push it. The green slopes away from you. And again, down breeze, you can be, if you've got wind-assisted back nine, you can have a 30 or 40-yard putt back up towards that front pin on that 13th green. It's coupled with the fifth, which, as you know, is the par five with the 100 yards of, of putting surface. Mm. Well, if you're a long way past the pin, it's on the front at 13. You're coming back the other way. And how hard do you hit a 30-yard a putt? How hard do you hit a 30-yard putt into the wind? It's difficult. I'm using my driver. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a, if you can make a par on 13 coming, you know, in the inward half, you're never going to be disappointed with par at 11 and par at 13. That would be a mainstay of you avoiding disaster on the back nine. There's one more of those holes to come. Well, one player who made the most of this particular hole was John Daly, who did this in the final round back in 1995. Liz Daly playing second shot to 13. He's a bit unlucky to run out of fairway, but he's got a fairly uh, straightforward shot. We're trying to play it from the right-hand side of the green and let it come back into the flag, which is exactly what he's done. It's a very good shot. He didn't have much green to work with, and uh, with the wind as it is today, that's an excellent shot. In our first program, where we were looking at the front nine of the old course at St. Andrews and sharing memories of distinctive things that took part, that one from John Daly was about his march to victory in 1995. The conditions were severe. The weather was severe. And John Daly did what he did. Seemingly, he exists in those times of, of at the height of his prowess in his own little world. And, and I, I think about the quotes after he won and someone asked him, they said, well, would you consider, you know, joining the RNA if they were to take you in for membership? And he said, I'm quoting, I ain't joining if there are rules and crap. I hate them rules and crap, close quote. And then later he was asked about his, his diet and his, his preparation to go out and compete in this, the world's major. And he said, quote, he had five or six chocolate croissant things, close quote, from J.D. So, Robert, there really hasn't been a golfer quite like John Daly, and here he was winning, again, a multiple-time major champion and doing it in severe conditions and doing it in a way that only he could. Yeah, and John has lived a life in only the way John can. Uh, and his son, by the way, J.D. Jr., um, he looks to be... I saw him and his dad play just before Christmas, or just, yeah, just before Christmas, where Tiger and Charlie were playing, and John and John Jr. were playing as well. He he's he's just about to hit the college scene, I think, and he looks like he's got some game as well. So I'm looking to see how John Daly Jr. Um, <laughs> yes. picks up the mantle because there was something very um, fun about watching John Daly again, a bit like Rory, unpredictable but riddled with brilliance. Yeah, well, the brilliance was very apparent with his approach and putt in round four in 1995. Right, to hole 14. Now, I said, Robert, at the start of our little description of hole 13, the first word I'd written down was difficult. This time, it's tough. You've got a, a tee shot deciding whether you're going to go right or left of uh, that group of bunkers. The beardies. The beardies. Yeah. You've got out-of-bounds... To the right, you've got Hell Bunker. I mean, goodness me, what else do you need? Well, there's a new back tee that they use now, which is makes the hole over 600 yards. Now, down breeze, they can get on. They can, they can reach the green in two. Into the breeze, it's a horrible tee shot because the wall on the right cuts in in your eye line, and that's out of bounds. And if it's into off the left, you'll see players knocking it out of bounds because you haven't got the width that you would have off that previous back tee. So it's a really, really difficult tee shot. 
into the wind, it's not a straightforward par five. And, and five actually not a bad score. Down breeze, it's another one of those holes that you're looking to make a bit of progress on. Yeah, 614 yards in its entirety. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun to watch, uh, I suspect, uh, Matty, over those four days. Oh, I think it's brilliant. I, I love the way that Robert just described it because this is a hole that comes Sunday afternoon, if it's Sunday afternoon this year, uh, but in that final round at the very least, it could very well decide who wins this open because it has such opportunity in it. I, I think back to uh, the last open I was assigned to follow Dustin Johnson and Jordan Spieth. And Robert, if you remember, we had, because of the wind delays that had happened the day before they had us in position. I was with Gordon Brand Jr. And they had us get out there at half six in the morning and all bundled up such as we were. in the night before, when Tom Watson had crossed the Swilkin Bridge, by the time we finished and play was called, the players couldn't see the green. But they hit their second shots anyway because play was still, was still officially on. Uh, both coming up just short of the 14th green in Dustin Johnson and in uh, Jordan Spieth. In the case of Jordan Spieth, he pops it on there. He would end up leading to a birdie. And with Dustin Johnson knowing full well the exact shot that he had facing him the next morning, could have prepared for it in terms of preparation. It just shows you how the old course can get in your head. He turned the turf over on it, and it ended up – didn't really hear from him again after that. It was just really interesting what can happen on 14. Yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, I'm going to keep referring back to – see, when I played at St. Andrews a couple of weeks ago, the previous time <laughs> I played – listen – the previous time I played there was 40 years before that, which was in the amateur championship, uh, the yeah, British amateur. That was the previous time that I played the old course. So uh, it was a long gap in between. So I'm milking it now. I don't mind. I played it twice in, in, in quick succession. But they had a pin on the front of that 14th green that there's a little tongue that sort of sticks out. There's a bunker on the left playing the hole as you see it. It's a very small area to try and get it close. It's hard to chip to. It's hard to wedge to. And um, with a breeze, a decent breeze around there, it's certainly not a gimme to, to get it on the green and two putt or get it on the green or chip and putt for your birdie. So it just makes the 14th as a par five in the middle of the back nine with all its nuances really interesting. Well, I wish we had audio of one of the times you played that particular hole. We've searched everywhere. We haven't. But when it comes to memories of this hole, there is only one man we can think of once again. Tiger in his prime in 2000, that three wood, that club twirl, Stevie Williams pure dominance. So Tiger's facing this 14th, which Ken's just described, and do you know he hasn't been in a bunker yet, which is extraordinary. Tiger Woods is going to be first to play off the Elysian Fields here on the 14th. He's got 292 all the way to go to the flag, 265 to the front. Now, do we think that uh, Tiger can get here? I have no doubt he can get there. You know, it's extraordinary talking about close on 300 yards off the fairway and you expect him to reach the green. That one you're talking about? That's the one right there, Tiger. I think he likes that one. Is that the one you're talking about? That's the one I'm talking about, Tiger. Nearly pitched it on the green. <laughs> well, not that we need any reminders, but, but Matty, just how good was Tiger with those long clubs back in 2000 and, and and the swing in all its pomp and glory oh in all its glory indeed especially on that shot he made absolutely perfect contact i love the fact that he said to steve williams his caddy quoting that the one you're talking about close quote that was quintessential tiger woods you know tiger's long irons were because nowadays people don't even carry three irons, but Tiger used to have a two iron in those days. And in the same year, at Valhalla, sixth hole, I think it's the sixth hole, it's a par five at a split fairway. Richard Boxall and I are doing radio commentary and we're walking around with Tiger. Two of us, it's a two-man operation. One's got to hold the aerial up in the air and the other's got the microphone. It was comical. However, we're watching Tiger. He's got 250, 255 to the, to the pin and he hits a two iron. It's down breeze. He hits a two iron that took off its trajectory was 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 almost an eight-iron trajectory, the way this two-iron took off. Down breeze, floated from such a height, landed on the green, and he held it on the green. It didn't mm. it didn't hit the green and kajoo straight through the back. He stopped a two-iron on a tabletop, as it were. Um, 
bruising the. T I mean, if he, if he, if he dislodged one blade of grass, I would have been amazed. He, the club just bruised the turf, and this thing just went. You craned your neck to see how high it went. It was the most extraordinary long line. You can ask Richard Boxall to this day about that one shot. He'll know exactly where he was and exactly what he saw. The guy was and is amazing, Tiger yeah. Woods. Sheer magic. Yeah. Right, let us continue our journey to the 15th hole. Par 4, 455 yards. Club selection vital, according to my notes. Demanding accuracy off the tee. And you've got a, a deep green, Rob, to contend with. Shared with the third and lots of pot bunkers just mm. for a bit of fun as well. Yeah, you've got to avoid Sutherland bunker because that's, that's, again, the fat of the fairway. Um, it's a shared fairway. If you can avoid that, um, the fairway narrows... So you you don't want to drive it really into the narrow bit. You don't. You just get it into the area past past Sutherland Bunker and have a shot into the green. And there's an area on the right-hand side called Miss Granger's Bosoms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's not a feature I, I hear mentioned often <laughs> in commentary, but it's here in my... I'd be tempted just to hit there to see what you find. Well, well uh, and you probably would do that on your own, Marcus. Um, the old course St. Andrews, Miss Granger's Bosoms on the right-hand side of the 15th, and there's Rob's bunkers. There are three horrible bunkers further down. They shouldn't come into play from the tee box. It's a positional fairway shot. Get it on the fairway, get it on the green, uh, and maybe hold a putt from somewhere. But coming down the stretch, um, probably not as concerned about 15 as you will be about 16, 17. No. Well, we'll come to those in a moment. We mentioned in uh, part one of our podcast, Paul Dunn, the Irish amateur who had a chance, or at least was in a great position maybe to go and win uh, back in uh, 2015, he led after three rounds. And, and this is the beauty of the Open, of course. Anybody can make their name, even if it's just for, for a, a fleeting moment of glory. And an example of that is Stephen Bottomley, who is a favourite of the Open podcast, so it's only right that we feature him once again. His approach and part in 1995 on the 15th when he was having the time of his life. Well, it was funny, the caddy seemed to be looking for a different flag. No, I think no, it's not the wind, Steve. Please give me a five eye. What, what are you doing, Just Jimmy? the wind, Steve. Look at it. This, 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 this is all sheltering you. It'll be interesting to see who's right here. I hope, it, I hope it's the player for the caddy's sake. Well, it's pretty good. He just keeps hitting greens and fairways. Bottomley at the 15th, four under. Come along, come around, come around. He hasn't done it again, has he? He's done it again, you know. <laughs> By God, they'll be lighting bonfires in Bailden, Saltaire, Nabwood. That's real Bradford Cup. That's lovely. If you ever get a chance to travel around that neck of the woods, that is some place to be. And what a lovely smiley face. If you could do another couple by me, he might go home with the old jug. Yorkshireman Bottomley, of course, was uh, quite a Cinderella story, if you will. He earned his way in via a qualifier. And on that day, he was the only player who shot below 70 in the field in the round. And he spent an hour in the clubhouse as the leader. Ultimately, he would end up finishing one shot back. He only had played the old course twice before that open. He did make a bogey at the road hole, which was his undoing on that day when the final accounting was done. But the story itself was absolutely amazing. His caddy, Joe, he caddied for me a couple of times. Um, he's a Geordie man. And he did. A, he used to do a, a sideline and some magic tricks. He was very good. Uh, they were quite the combination coming down the back stretch. It was, a, it was, it was almost like um, Spieth and Michael Greller, the pair of them chatting over every shot coming down the stretch. And I think he birdied, I think he birdied 18 and bogeyed 17. If he'd have parred 17, he'd have played off. That's how close he got. Yeah. Back to your your um, proposition earlier on in the podcast. Was that the first podcast? I think it was. Yeah. Yes. Oh, so if anyone is listening to this second podcast first and having listened to the third podcast or the first one, um, Marcus said, you know, about players getting their one chance. This was Stephen Bottomley's chance. And to be honest, he did nothing wrong. Anyone can bogey 17. Mm. Of course, they can listen to this podcast first. You can start with 10th. It's, it's, it's perfectly acceptable. But perhaps... Two T start. Two T start. Uh, just in terms of that conversation, and obviously with the benefit of microphones, you can pick up everything. Mm. 
Um, is that generally a healthy thing? Do you, do you like it when you when you hear sort of honest conversations going on between the player and the caddy? Do I like sitting on my couch hearing that? Do you mean, or do I? No, or, or I mean, if, I like... if you're if you're actually the player or the you're backing the player, that the relationship. Sort of, yes, I think I think the fact they're doing that it suits them both because if it didn't suit one of the other and they were together, one would have spoken up. So Bottomley would have said, "Look, let's chat. Just give me a club and I'll hit." Or I like having the conversation. So the fact you're hearing it. It's agreeable to both parties. Mm. But a caddy worth his salt cannot keep his mouth shut. He is, he's got to put himself out on the limb and say, this is what I think. Because the player doesn't get it right all the time. And if you were a caddy afterwards and said, God, you know, I knew, he had, I knew he had the wrong club in his hand. You haven't done your job. Caddy's got to be brave sometimes. It's not an easy job. I was listening to one of the other open podcasts and Fanny Sunnison was talking about her relationship with Nick Faldo and, and Matty. You know, in particular, she would say, we, we all know that, that Nick got into his bubble, particularly if, if he was closing in on a big victory. And one of her tricks was to, was to try and just distract him briefly. And, and on one occasion, I think she said to him, are you going to get a dog or are you getting a, a you know new wallpaper, something like a that? A racehorse. Yeah, whatever. Well, yeah, he certainly could afford a couple of those. But <laughs> I, I just love the fact that the, the teamwork, the, the camaraderie is obviously so important if you're going to have continued success out there. It's interesting to me that when people look at a modern caddy, uh, they look at the heavy bag that they haul. It looks like it's it's a necessity to carry on with brute force, uh, certainly to expend a great deal of energy. But I think that, and this, this goes to what Robert was just saying, I think that a caddy's chief value on the golf course is that they were the game's original sports psychologists. They have to read their player. They have to know when to step in. They have to know when to step out. They have to know when to take that risk, to be brave, as he so well phrased it, and say, I think it's too much club or it's not enough. The combination of relationships between caddies is absolutely critical, and it's amazing. It has played a very significant part in the history of the Open. Right, next for us is the 16th, par four, 418 yards. A classic risk-reward hole, Robert. The principal's nose, three bunkers down the left-hand side have to be avoided. Tight out-of-bounds down the right-hand side. This is quite a, a treacherous tee shot. If you want to keep it away from the, the slim bit of fairway that leads its way up to the green, you're leaving yourself in with a lengthy second. And the green is... It's very multi-layered from the front part of the green. It goes up and there's a couple of little wrinkles in it and it's not easy to get it close. It's a hole you can come unstuck on 16. If you play it well, obviously, like any hole in golf, you can give yourself a birdie chance. But you're not thinking, oh, good, 16, here's a birdie hole. You're not thinking that on the tee box. It needs to be thought out and executed properly. But, uh, you know, as a prelude to 17, mm. I'd say it's perfect. Well, one man who thought it out perfectly back in 1964 was the eventual champion that year, Tony Lima. His second now to the 16th corner of the dike, 380 yards. And here this morning he played uh, a little half wedge. It'll be slightly more than that this afternoon because the wind is uh, slightly more into his face. There it is. Oh, a beautiful stroke right up by the flag. He's got that part for a three on the 16th. Well, it was a fantastic year for Tony Lima, who, Matty, and I, I was amazed to, to read this, he had never played in the United Kingdom prior to that summer, had he? Yeah, he had not. That's a, that's a fact. He had never played in the UK. He had never played Lynx Golf. He arrived only 36 hours before tournament proper and the competition got underway. Uh, Champagne Tony Lima, as they called him, he was a great personality. Sadly, he died in the plane crash only two years after this victory. But remember where we were talking about the importance of a relationship between player and caddy? Well, as you gents may well know, Tip Anderson was the caddy that Arnold Palmer used when he was playing in the Open. Well, he didn't go over in 1964, and he recommended to Tony Lima that he use Tip Anderson. Lima said later on that without Tip Anderson, he would not have won that Open. He said he used him not only for the lines that he would play off the tee, but it got to a point where Tip would hand him the club that he would use in the given shot. He ended up winning by five strokes over Jack Nicklaus, an absolutely remarkable story. It really is. It's also a reminder that when it comes to trying to pick a winner, Rob, at 
the Open. It's almost impossible because there, there's Tony Lima who, who who turns up and falls in love with mm. the course straight away and wins it. So it, it, it's such a tough challenge, as it always is, of course, to tr try and pick any major champion, but perhaps even more so in these circumstances? There's, there's a lot of variables in an Open Championship because it's the height of a, a British summer or British and Irish summer, and the tee starts, it's probably 6.30, first tee off. Last tee off might be quarter past four. I mean, you can do a lot of things in your life in between those hours, and, and they're finishing at dark, which is probably, you add five and a half or five hours onto half past four, and you're getting to kind of half past nine at night. So for, what's that, 15 hours, you can have a lot of variables in weather. The wind can switch, it could rain in the morning, clear up in the afternoon, and there could be a, you needed to be out in the morning on Thursday. That's the corner of the draw that produced the champion because they were more favourable conditions. But that's the vagaries of Lynx golf, open golf, and at St Andrews, um, it is weather dependent. You know, we're talking about these holes like the weather's okay, but if you put a 25 mile an hour across that golf course, all bets are off. It's a survival course. And then it might bring other other types of players into it, people that have very flat ball flights and what have you. So that is the fun of an open championship. The fact that pretty much you don't know what's going to happen. And Robert, when you think about this 16th hole too, my mind goes back to 2015, as you remember with Jordan Spieth in that final round. Here he is attempting to recreate winning three majors in a row. Mm. Such a rare feat in the game of golf. He had about 40 feet for his birdie putt at 16 and Jordan Spieth split the hole in half. Jordan Spieth has prowled around this and he is so eager to hit all these golf shots. The weight of history is not hanging heavy around him. Look out. <laughs> he is a, he's not even 22 yet, you know. What an amazing putt that was. That's what Jordan used to do. I mean, Jordan was the most phenomenal putter. Remember how he closed out the Open when he won at Birkdale, when they, when he made that most improbable bogey. I think it was a uh, 13. I think it was 13. Then he 14s a par three, and he he did. He makes two there, and then he makes an eagle, and the putty hole coming down that stretch when he had to, because mm. Kucha looked like yeah. he had a chance playing alongside him, uh, and Jordan Spieth shut him out. So, like we said. Jordan Spieth is a rock and roll roller coaster of a ride. Yeah, that was just one of the extraordinary Sunday afternoons we've been so lucky to enjoy uh, over the past, um, well, few decades. Uh, some go back even longer in, in Rob's case, of course. Right, we, we've got to be strong now because mm. we are heading to the 17th. I've got a whole list of St Andrews stats. The 17th, statistically the hardest hole at the Open, close to averaging a full shot over par since 1980. We know what you mustn't do at the 17th. What have you got to do to avoid all the horror? The 17th, the road hole, number one, you've got to hit it over a hotel, right? <laughs> Who puts a hotel in front of your tee shot? There's a, hello, where do I go? There's a hotel, I can see room 355. <laughs> no, you've got to go, you skirt the line of the hotel, new back tee, it's nearly 500 yards, there or thereabouts, it's a long, long par four. Very difficult tee shot, wind dependent. You've got to be bold and hope that your homework is right and you work out that you can see the church spire and you've got to kind of, well, if I'm 50 yards right at that, I'm pretty good. If it doesn't run out and go in a thick rough, you find the fairway. Then your second shot is to a green that's not designed to hold any shot at all. It sort of runs left. There's the road hole bunker in the middle of it. That, that dominates the whole scene when you look at 17. It's an excruciatingly difficult par four. It is. But I, I don't care who you are. Argue with me and tell me it's a great hole. It's not a great hole, but it is a brutal hole coming down the stretch, trying to win at St Andrews, create history for yourself, You've got to get past 17. It's as simple as that. And there's no guaranteed way that you can do it. I think Robert needs a break. <laughs> the 17th is one of the great par fours anywhere in the game. It is, by any definition, brilliant. First of all, off the tee, very simply, you aim over the O. And you're off and running. I, I think back to Tommy Armour when a player was complaining about a blind tee shot. This one, of course, was defined by dunes, not by what used to be a railroad warehouse. 
And Tommy Armour said to him, a, a, a blind hole is only blind, a blind shot is only blind once to a man with a memory. And certainly the memories of what took place at the road hole are long. Safely played into the fairway, or even if you hedge it to the left and you get into that wispy rough on that side. Uh, many of the players, in fact, the, the first time I was doing commentary at an open, it was for ESPN back in the day. And we were in a tower over by number two uh, in the tee box. And here I was watching tee shots being played into 17 fairway or into that rough on the left side. And then the choices that the players were making were absolutely exquisite. Their choices were at that time because of wind conditions, either a seven iron into that green and they were not afraid of going through the green long and right because you just end up on the tee box for 18 not a problem from there for any or they would hit this little bump and run five iron which was so brilliant up that first step of the green i love the road hole i and i think it's one of the great par fours in all of the world for a whole variety of different reasons many of which mirror yes what rob said but in in every sense it's a hole where you have to employ proper strategy in order to prevail well matty have a listen to this we've got we've got three classic examples of what memorably has happened at the 17th over the years first of all tom watson against the wall in 1984. but watson's not cheering and he will need a total miracle to get down in two from here but it across the road across the path and up the bank and then it should only be trickling by the time it gets to the top of that bank and roll down to the hole well he couldn't really do much more yeah it can catch anybody out and of course it's going to be in the back of your mind particularly if you're challenging Matty, because you know it's coming. Mm. You can't escape it, can you? And the thing that's so brilliant about that was at least he could get behind the ball because there are times uh, when you're so close to that wall that you cannot get a club behind the golf ball. You have to take it face on. So the wall is one issue. The bunker, of course, is another. Now you can uh, hold your breath if you're a New Zealander. Two examples. Now, one's a happy story. One isn't. Tommy Nakajima shortly. First of all, Michael Campbell with a miracle escape. And he aloft. Can he get it up high enough, straight enough to get out? He has. He got out. Not only that, he got near. Well, what would old Tom Morris have said of that? Miraculous. Now let's see it again. He's got to play away from the flagstick, as you see, face wide open of the club. And look at the spin he got on it, that real slice spin. It went high in the air, spinning towards the flag, and it landed on the down slope of the bunker. In fact, right on the top of it, look, and gently down to the hole. Wonderful. Well, that was Michael Campbell, incredibly, in 1995, but this was Tommy Nakajima in 1978. Nearly 100,000 spectators have been here already this week, beating the championship record with a day to spare. The 25,000-odd today will see some dramatic events. Nakajima at the 17th, only one stroke off the lead, but in the notorious road bunker. He's left it in. Would you believe it? That's his fourth shot. He was on the green in two. Put it into the bunker. He's now playing five. Still not out. That's six. And it tries, but comes back again. Out for seven, but on his way to a tragic nine. Nakajima, you know. Back then, that bunker used to have um, a downhill slope to that steep face. So you had two things. The downhill slope meant that your ball was going to come out flatter, but you had to get the ball up really quickly. And you could see what happened with Nakajima there. Every time, every time of course, it bounces on the revetted face, doesn't come out, it can come back into the sand and semi-plug, and your problems just continue time and time again. Yeah. Never, ever forget that with him. But they have softened it slightly. 
which is probably a fairer thing to do. And again, like the bunkers we talked about in other parts of the golf course, the bunker might be a certain size. It's twice the size because of the way that the, the ground around the bunker gathers everything. You've seen it so many times, a ball rolling, will it? Oh, and then it does a, a right-hander and goes straight into the bunker, and then you're thinking, oh, happy days. Yes, a quintuple bogey, the sands of Nakajima. And actually, I mean, for poor old Nakajima as well, it was the second time in the same year, Matty, that he suffered a, a moment of absolute horror. I think it was, was it a 13 that he took at the, the par 5 13th at the Masters a few months earlier? Yeah, I mean, obviously, major championships have the ability to to sneak up and bite you. And that's what happened there. I love the way that Robert described that road hole bunker and the way that it had been designed and shaped back in those days, that if you got in the wrong position, it was incredibly difficult to extract oneself from it. And then uh, Robert also talked about the shaping and, and that shaping that's done around a bunker can be very much like a huge bowl or a vase and that anything that gets within a certain quadrant of it is going to circle its way down and into that very unforgiving bunker. I remember when Martin Hawtrey was was asked to kind of touch up a number of different things in the old course a few years ago and there was a mini outcry from people saying, how could you touch something that should be sacrosanct that, that this golf course gets played exactly the way that it is. And if you look at that, then people are forgetting that a golf course is constantly living and breathing and changing. And that road hole bunker, all you have to do is go and watch some of the old footage of, of, uh, Doug Sanders back in 1970 and see that the road hole bunker then was just above his knee. It wasn't even to his waist. So it's been changing for its entire existence. Well, it's going to be the focus of much attention again, fun and games. Plenty of tears as well. That's the 17th. One to go. Tom Morris, the par four, 356-yard finale and the site of so many dramatic moments over the years. And so now, this is it. And this is what people dream about, that you've got this one with a left-hand burrow downhill on the last green at St Andrews to win the Open. Missed it, yes. Certainty, yes, that's the side you're bound to miss. So there, the Open Championship of 1970 ends in a tie between the two Americans, Doug Saunders and Jack Nicklaus. Nicklaus has this to win the Open. Oh, he's got it, he's got it. And that's it, and that settles it. And Nicklaus wins the Open, and you won't ever get a more dramatic finish than that. Uh, please go in. We don't want any anti-climax. Oh, well done. To have everything, ironically enough, come down to this tournament, the Open Championship at St. Andrews, the home of golf. It's been a very special weekend and something that I will never, ever forget. Zach Johnson, he's got about a 20-foot birdie putt. He had a look at the big leaderboards at the back of the green. He sees Leishman on 16 under, and I think he knows that this is a must. This will break left to right. Ball's on its way. I think he likes it. I think he likes it. And he's got it! Zach Johnson, a fantastic birdie three. And he pumps the air. He's caddies doing a dance round the hole. He runs it through, and it's a beauty. And he's made it. He's made it. Nick Faldo eagles the last hole. Classically played right through the Valley of Sin. Bump and run, and into the hole. Savvy lining up a shortish putt. This for a three, and he's just done it. Oh, ho, 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 ho. you think he enjoyed that one? That's fantastic stuff. Well, you heard Jack Nicklaus's playoff victory over Doug Sanders, Tiger completing the Grand Slam in 2000, Zach Johnson's long birdie putt in 2015, Sir Nick Faldo's chip in 1990, and that Seve birdie in 84. So many stories. What's your pick of those, Rob? I, you know, I remember when Jack Nicholas played his last Open, he he held a putt across that green at St Andrews. But for me, the Seve one was the the iconic pictures of Seve with his reaction to the putt just dropping in last breath on the right-hand side in 1984, I think, with and all the images I've seen since of that is the one that really sticks in my mind. Seve 1984 goes together with um, St Andrews. And I'm telling you that in a few weeks' time when we get there, one man will be going to St Andrews who's 
vision of legacy and history in the game of golf is not forgotten, hasn't slipped him by, John Rahm will be going to St Andrews with that Seve thing that's there. That the, the, It's not a heavyweight, but it's a spirit of Seve that's at St Andrews. That is not lost on John Rahm when he gets there. Matty, can you pick out one story above all others from the 18th at St Andrews? Well, I can't disagree with Robert in terms of the significance of Seve's victory in 1984, what it meant then, what it continues to mean now. In terms of the historical significance, I think Tiger's victory in the year 2000 meant so much because of what he did, because of the way that he did it. Uh, But there's another, it didn't end up in a victory for this man and Doug Sanders that I think is equally as important in terms of the triumph and tragedy stories that are the game of golf and certainly that are majors at the old course. And that 1970 loss by Doug Sanders, now in fairness, it was a victory by Jack Nicklaus. In fact, he drove through the 18th green in the, in the playoff the next day. But for Doug Sanders missing that little putt as he was stepping up to that putt, Ben Hogan, who was watching it at home in Texas, was saying, step away, Doug, step away, Doug, step away. If you take the time to watch the video of that missed putt, say on YouTube or wherever you get your historic video, you can see Lee Trevino in the background and he spins around as the putt is missed because you could tell he was thinking the same thing. I spoke to Doug Sanders about that putt one time because of the significance of it. He finished second in major championships five times and never broke through. He never won one. And I said to Mr. Sanders, and at this time he was a very early man, a very interesting character. He, he was compelled to tell you of his former glory because he just, I think, didn't feel like he was treated like the great champion that he was, save for these misses at the majors. And I said to Mr. Sanders, does that miss putt, does that loss in that open haunt you? Do you think about it all the time? And he said to me after a pause, no, I don't think about it all the time. No more than once a day. Yeah, I mean, uh, agonising because we, we've all seen it. We all can yeah. guess at how he was feeling. Do, do you know, and, and you've got to live with that. It was windy. Oh. It was windy. It's about two and a half feet downhill left to right. And he stopped. He was about to hit and he stopped to, I don't know if he picked up something that was imaginary or what it was on the line, something, but he broke his routine to what Matt was saying. That's why Hogan was saying, you know, step away, step away and start the whole thing again instead of just bending down there and then straight back into his stance. I mean, he might have knocked it in and no one would have said a word, but, but Hogan, if that's what he said, recognised that when, you, when your routine is broken, you back off and then you begin the whole thing again. You don't sort of pick up halfway. That's something that you learn um, as, you're, as you're making your way in professional golf. But it was uh, tragic, too strong a word. It's only a game after all, but it's certainly haunting for Doug Sanders. Yeah, just one of the extraordinary moments the Open has thrown up. Well, finally, in terms of playing the hole, because having come through the 17th, or hopefully you've come mm. through it OK, I mean, it's opportunities beckon, yeah. don't they? For yeah, you? that out-of-bounds out line is down the right-hand side and it's it's essentially the right edge of the green all the way up there to, to, the, to the 18th green. Massive fairway. It's the same double fairway you encountered when you played the first in the opposite direction. So you aim... Generally, you aim left, and if you can, if you can aim left and cut it a bit, then you can, with a breeze helping, reach the green. These these long players these days can knock it on there. It's still difficult. It's still you think all the room in the world, and if I miss, I'm chipping, and if I lay up, I've got a wedge in. This is a guaranteed birdie opportunity. It's not that straightforward. The front of the green, like so many at St Andrews, has got its own story. The Valley of Sin. Remember Costantina Rocca, yep. just short of the green chipped, duffed it into the Valley of Sin, and then most improbably hold a 45, 50-footer up the hill for a birdie three. sorts of stuff happens on what looks like to be the most benign hole, finishing hole in a major championship that you could ever imagine. You're looking at it there at 18, and yet it's not straightforward and simple. Because you say to yourself on that tee, if I make a mess of this, I am an idiot, and the whole world's watching. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing from Rocker. Took him into the playoff with John Daly, which, of course, the American won. It's been a fantastic journey, walking these 18 holes uh, with both of you. Matty, Rob, thank you so much for your expertise and your insight. 
and it's it's just further whetted the appetite for the 150th Open. Remember to subscribe to the Open Podcast via your favourite podcast provider. That way, when our next Open Preview Podcast is released on Friday the 8th of July, you'll be notified straight away. And a reminder, you can also listen to the Open Radio during the Championship from Thursday the 14th to Sunday the 17th of July, where we'll bring you full uninterrupted coverage until the close of play each day. You can find the radio live on theopen.com and the Open app. You can also listen to our review podcasts after each day's play on your preferred podcast provider. But for now, from me, Marcus Buckland, Robert Lee and Matt Adams, it's goodbye. Explore the rich history of the Open like never before with our interactive timeline celebrating the journey. Visit thejourney.theopen.com and immerse yourself in golf's original championship. This has been an original audio production from The Open.